It's a joy to be together on a Sunday morning and open God's Word together. And let's do that now. Let's open to Genesis chapter 28. We're going to read from there just a few verses, and then we will read from Genesis 46, which is our passage for the day. So you might want both of those prepared. Again, Genesis chapter 28. I'm going to read for us something we've covered already that begins in verse 10. Hear now the reading of God's inspired, inerrant word. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Chapter 46. Beginning in verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, 
their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, as we pause this morning with your word open before us, looking at the grand scope of the life and movements of Jacob, the patriarch, we see your faithfulness. We see that you made promises to him that encouraged him to press on the way, even to places unknown, places frightening, but knowing that he had your presence, he went. Knowing that he had your promises, he went. And Father, this morning we are not in the same circumstance as Jacob. We don't face the same difficulties. We don't have the same experiences, the same history, or the options before us. But we face paths that perhaps are unknown. Maybe we've been down them before and we know to uh, be on the alert on those paths, knowing that harm could befall us there. Perhaps it's paths that we face that are completely unknown where we don't know how they will end up, where they will take us, what they might do to us. Father, as we face this life, as we face these difficulties, perhaps large, perhaps small, we are in need. And so this morning, as your word is open, we pray that you would work on our hearts by your Spirit that we would face those fears we have, recognize them for what they are, that we would find hope and peace in you that would give us strength to face the things that we need to face in this life. So, Father, as we have your word open, we ask that you would minister to us in these next few minutes. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you to think about what it is you are afraid of. What are you afraid of? And I don't mean spiders and snakes and mutant polar bears or something like that. Those things, if you ran into them, you might run away. But I mean the things that that keep you up at night that make it so you can't fall asleep, or perhaps if you wake up in the middle of the night, you can't go back to sleep. What is that? It's probably different for each one of us, or it has a different flavor for each one of us. What are the things, what is that biggest thing for you that you're afraid of? I was 
in prayer this morning about this topic, about this message, and I, I started thinking through some things that people I know personally <clears throat> are afraid of, that they're facing in their lives that perhaps keep them up at night, perhaps <clears throat> are more than daunting. And here's the brief list I came up with in just a couple of minutes. Illness, cancer, death, perhaps for yourself, perhaps for others near you. What about ongoing loneliness? What about fear of loneliness? What about being abandoned by other people, rejected? What about failure? What about uh, the fear of what others will say about you? Your decisions, your actions, your life, you. What about a fear that a family member might commit suicide? What about a fear of never getting married? A fear of perhaps mental illness? Or perhaps fear that reconciliation with a loved one will never happen? What about, what about fear of not being accepted? Or fear of political or economic calamity? financial calamity? What about fear that you might miss God's will for your life? What about fear of insignificance? Probably not everything on that list makes sense to you. Probably something on that list did. I want us to have those fears in mind today as we deal with our passage. You see, we're talking about Jacob. We're in the life of Jacob, and we've spent quite a bit of time dealing with him. And what he, at one point in his life, had feared the most was the loss of his favorite son, Benjamin. And until circumstances became such that he needed food, and he needed food badly enough for himself and for all of his people. And that it took a, uh, an oath by Judah, his other son, to persuade him to allow Benjamin to go down into that dangerous land of Egypt. He was afraid of losing Benjamin. And now, at our place in the story where we find ourselves, he has seen Benjamin return. He's come back from Egypt. He's unharmed. And more than that, when Benjamin returned, he learned that not only was his favorite son alive, which is a good thing, but that the other son, who was his first favorite son, by the way, this is all terrible parenting, by the way, but his first favorite son, Joseph, was actually alive. He thought he was torn apart by wild beasts, but here he is alive, and not only is he alive, but he's risen to a position of power, and not just any position of power in Egypt, but he's the grand vizier. He's, he's, he's the prime minister of Egypt. He has all authority, essentially, in Egypt. And so, 
He's been afraid of losing this son, and now he's had these, these fears taken away. And, and, and then even the loss of Joseph turns out not to have been a loss, but Joseph is still there. But with all of this, at, at having those fears addressed, what might he be afraid of now? Surely, having that thing checked off of his list, there would be no fear left, right? The worst fear has been removed, and so surely he would have no fear. But he does have a fear. Jacob had a deep fear of being without God. You see, as he had been leaving the land earlier in his life, remember he was fleeing from his brother who wanted to kill him? And he was leaving the land and he was on his way out. He needed assurance from God that God would go with him as he went into this strange and foreign land. He was going, but God met him on the way and God gave him that assurance, saying, I will go with you and I will bring you back. And with that assurance, with that word from God, that reassurance that God would be with him, he found the courage to go forward into the unknown, to press into Padanaram, away from the land of his fathers, the land that had been promised to him and to his father and to his grandfather, back to a place that he himself had never known. But he was willing to, and he was encouraged to go because God would be with him. It would be okay. And so he woke up from his dream, and he took the stone he had rested his head on, and he placed it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on it, he anointed it, and he he made a vow saying, "If, if God really will go with me, I'll go, and he will be my God. Well, that was early in his life. That was at the beginning. That was when he was a young man, younger. Now, all these years later, the same man, not... Not a, not a young man just starting a family, but an old man with gray hair and tired. He's faced with the same dilemma. He's in the land. He's being summoned to leave the land and go into a place unknown. His father had been to Egypt. His grandfather had been to Egypt. He had not been to Egypt. In fact, he had been warned not to go there. He had been warned to stay in the land. He's hesitant. He doesn't want to go, but he's being summoned that way. And by the way, that's where food is. That's where provision is. And that's where his favorite son, Joseph, is located. So he's being summoned down into the land, but he knows that Egypt has always meant trouble for his family. So he finds himself in need of encouragement once again. Will God be with him? Will it be okay? Well, in our passage today, God says so. God says, I will go with you. It will be okay. And, and throughout the text we're going to look at today in these next couple of chapters, Jacob gets a foretaste of God going with him. And first of all, he gets it as he and his son Joseph are reunited at last. And so we pick up the story there in the beginning of 46. We see that Jacob, as he migrates southward, he stops in Beersheba and he offers sacrifices to God while he's there. And there God speaks to him in visions of the night. And by the way, the last time God had spoken to Jacob, at least that we have recorded, was some time back, all the way back in chapter 35. So we've gone 11 or 12 chapters since 
we have a recording of God speaking directly to Jacob. But in that passage, when God had spoken to him, he had renamed him. He had blessed him. And he had promised him that he would make him into a great nation and give him the land of Canaan. And now he's pondering leaving the land of Canaan. And God's word back then said, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Well, now, as Joseph has the, or Jacob has the land to his back, and he's got Egypt in front of him, and he's hesitant to step out, God speaks to him on this very topic of leaving the land. First of all, God reiterates the promise that He will make him into a great nation, and then He promises that though He is leaving the land to go down to Egypt, He will bring him back up into the land. But Jacob will not stay there. Jacob will be not, not be lost there. He will not end up there. God says in verse 3, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation, and I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And so, though Jacob is hesitant to leave the land, it's been promised to him, it's the land he grew up in, he knows it's the land of his future, he knows it's the land his offspring are to inherit. He's on the edge, he's about to go, and God appears to him and reiterates those same promises and says, don't worry, Jacob. I will bring you back to the land. Jacob, I will go with you. It will be okay. And so, Jacob leaves. He gathers up his possessions, gathers up all of his stuff, and he's willing to do that. He's willing to leave the land of promise. Because God had said, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. He had assurance of God's presence, and so he was willing to go. And we would be remiss if we didn't pause here and think for just a second about how wonderful is the blessing of the presence of God. That we don't have to take a journey somewhere go on a pilgrimage to a tall mountain in Tibet, or find some special island that's particularly uh, lonesome or something like that, as if God is located there. We don't have to go to a place to find God. He finds us. And He gives us His very presence. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 139, starting in verse 3. He says, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? 
Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. What a blessing is the presence of our God. What a blessing the believer has. We who are in Christ did not go on a pilgrimage to find Him. We who know God personally, have peace with Him and can call Him our Father, did not come into that relationship because we made some journey to find God somewhere He's located. Exactly the opposite. There we were dead in our trespasses and sins, not caring to find God, not wanting to find Him, not seeking for Him. And while we were in that very state, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, born as one of us, God seeking us by sending His Son. And Christ in His life of obedience and His sacrificial death paves the way for those who are in sinful rebellion against God to be united with Him, to have peace with God. You see, God seeks out and finds the lost. And then the Spirit of God, not content to leave just that work done by Christ, applies that to us so that He continues by His Spirit to seek us out, to draw us to Himself, to redeem us. And we who have faith in Christ, we who have had our sins washed away, who have had the righteousness of Christ applied to us, now have been united with Christ, with the Spirit of God dwelling in us and never to depart from us. That this presence of God that we see pictured for us, that we see in this instance here with Jacob, is our experience by the presence of God's Holy Spirit. What a blessing is the presence of God. Jacob's experience was a little bit different, but nevertheless, with his words of encouragement, God saying, I will go with you and I will bring you back up again, Jacob is willing to go, and so he and all his property go down into the land. They, they travel down there, and we have a, an extensive list there of all the people who went with him. Starting there in verse 8, I won't read all that. I know you were Uh, hoping to be entertained by my pronunciation of 70 Hebrew names, but we're not going to have that today. (laughs) He names them all. They're all listed, indicating who's going down there. Uh, It's a a totality. It's a complete number. It's It's a significant number if we remember that Jacob, the last time he left the land, was by himself. Remember, he was so alone, he put his head on a rock to sleep. And he comes back from Padanaram and after, after that journey, that 20-year period in the land, he comes back and he's, he's got uh, uh, wives and he's got children. He's, he's, he's a growing number and now going into the land, 70 persons. And we read in verse 28, Jacob, that he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph. Joseph waiting down in the land. Had sent Judah ahead of him 
to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. They came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. What a sweet reunion that all these decades Jacob has believed firmly that Joseph is dead, that his favorite son is gone, torn by beasts, and now to be reunited with him, to get to hug him, to get to weep on his neck a good long while. God takes Jacob down into the land and all his people and blesses him right off the bat with this sweet reunion. We see blessing continued, though, with them being sustained in famine. They go down into the land, they meet Joseph, but it's not just a happy reunion. There's uh, more to it than that. They are sustained in famine. And first of all, we see that Joseph's family is sustained in the famine. We, we read there in verses 31 and, and uh, following how uh, Joseph prepares them to say to Pharaoh, uh, we are shepherds. Play it up that you're shepherds because to all of the Egyptians, uh, shepherds are an abomination, so they will want you to be in a distant place. So make sure you tell them a lot that you're shepherds and they will place you over in Goshen and you can be by yourself over there. And so that's exactly what happens. And uh, they, they go and they, they are presented to Pharaoh and they play up that fact that they get to uh, take care of sheep for a living just like their fathers do. And so they're left in the land and uh, they, they go and live in that land in the process. Even Jacob himself goes and meets Pharaoh. Joseph's family is sustained in the land. But then we see further than that, remember, the blessing is not just for Abraham and his offspring, but through Abraham and his offspring to all the families of the earth. Well, we see an example of that. I'm not going to go into detail on this, but Egypt also is sustained in the famine. Remember how this all started, that Jacob rose to power, or Joseph rose to power, is because Pharaoh had these dreams that he couldn't interpret. And God gave Joseph the ability to interpret the dreams. And in the dreams, he interpreted that there will be seven years of plenty like we've never seen. And then after that will be seven years of famine like we've never seen. So here's what I recommend. Save up a lot of food in the seven years of plenty that will sustain you through the seven years of famine. Well, in our place in the story, we're a couple of years into those years of famine. And what happens is the people of Egypt come to Joseph to ask for food because they don't have any more food. And, and so they, they're willing to give all their money for food. So they, they give up all their money, first of all, for food. And they're fed for a while on that. And then the idea is they come back the next year and they say, well, we don't, we don't have any more money. How about livestock? And so they give all their livestock. They sell their livestock and they receive food in return. You see, Egypt, uh, the, the government of Egypt has all the food so the people first come and give all their money. They come again, and now they sell all their livestock. Well, then they get hungry again because they eat through the food. And where are they going to go to find food? There's only one place. So they go to Egypt, to the government of Egypt. They go to Joseph himself. And this time they say, we, it's no secret. We don't have any more money. 
and uh, you already have our cattle. Um, I guess we could sell our land for more food. And so Joseph agrees to that, and in exchange for their land, he gives them food. And it goes one step further, and they, they say, we don't have land. We don't have cattle to put on the land. We don't have any money for food because that's all gone. How about ourselves? Can we come and live at your place? <laughs> Is the idea. Would you, could we be your servants so that we could have food? That's all they have left is their own freedom. And so they're willing to do that. They're willing to sell themselves for the purpose of having food. That's, that's pretty bare living right there. They have no other options. They have nothing else that they can do. Nowhere else they can go for food. And why is it that they have one place to go for food? Why is that? Because of God's blessing on Joseph. And through Joseph, blessing comes to Egypt. It's because of the blessing of God that they have anywhere to go for food. Otherwise, they would have starved. Otherwise, they would not have known that in those seven years of plenty, they should lay aside a bunch of food for hard times to come. It was only by the, the blessed hand of God through His servant Joseph that they were able to do that. And so, a blessing upon these people is that they get to eat. The cost is everything that they own, but in their opinion, it's worth it. In their opinion, they look at Joseph and they say, we are kept alive because of what you've done. They're grateful that they get to have their lives. So though it's not easy, though it's difficult in this time of famine, Egypt is sustained in the famine. And of course, from this in verses 23 through 26 of chapter 47, we have a tax that's put into place where the people are given grain, but they're to give a fifth of all of their produce to Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets to keep that. The rest is for their own, so a tax is introduced. The only people ex accepted from that are the priests themselves. So what's going on? We, we could have focused on that. I could have talked about whether it was worth it to sell their freedom for food. I really debated talking about that. But in their opinion, in that moment, at that stage of hunger, they thought that was a good trade. And I think probably for us, we would think that was a good trade as well, that if we were watching our little ones starve to death and we had nothing else to do, it's not like they had a secret stash of, of uh, food that they were just uh, hadn't tapped into or had credit cards that they could go and, and score some, some food that way. They had no options. So they sold their own freedom. As much as I would like to dwell on that, I think the point here is the blessing of God through His people in sustaining these folks, both God's people and the Egyptians, through famine. And why is this? It's because of the blessing, the blessing of God. So not only are they uh, reunited at last, not only are they sustained in famine, but finally we see they are enriched in Egypt. Look at verse 27. Look at verse 27 of chapter 47. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, 
and they gained possessions in it. This is simultaneous with the paragraphs that came before. The people before were losing everything, selling everything. Dave Ramsey talks about rice and beans. They would have given anything for rice and beans. They gave everything just to have some food. And while that's going on and the Egyptians are on the verge of starvation, do you see the contrast? This is simultaneous. Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Do you see the contrast? The the people are bloated with hunger in Egypt. The Egyptians are are suffering so badly. How, How far, how hungry would you have to be to be willing to become a slave to get out of it. I personally don't know that kind of hunger. This whole nation knew that hunger. At the same time, and in the same land, just in a different region, Goshen, the people of God, far from suffering, they were growing in possessions. They were being fruitful, and they were multiplying greatly. The blessing of God upon the people of God, even in such hard times, is shocking. We see Jacob's words at the end of his life when the Verse 29, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed, or perhaps the head of his staff. But here at the end of his life, nearing the end, Jacob, looking at his life, calls Joseph to himself, and he makes him swear, don't leave me here. Don't leave me behind. I want to go back to be buried with my fathers, buried in my own land. Swear it. And so he swears it. Well, what are the implications we draw from our passage? I think they're profound. The first one. Hardship in the land does not necessarily mean hardship for God's people. That contrast is so sharp between the suffering of the Egyptians and the plenty of the people of Israel, that we must notice that contrast. Hardship in the land does not necessarily mean hardship for God's people. The people of Egypt had spent all their money. They'd sold all their cattle. They had sold all their lands. They'd sold their own freedoms just so they can eat. And then we read, that the children of Jacob were living high on the hog. 
they were multiplying. They were growing in possessions. And why? Not because they were wheeling and dealing and taking advantage of the people who were starving in Egypt. No, they were shepherding their sheep out in Goshen and experiencing God's provision. God blesses His people in unlikely ways. What is hardship to the world can be blessings for God's people. Even during famine, even while they will be enslaved in generations to come, God blesses His people in unlikely ways. And so, when you see hardship in the land, when you see the threat of hardship in the land, that does not necessarily mean hardship for God's people. Why? Implication number two, because God will be with us. It will be okay. With God's presence with us wherever we go, we ought to be fearless. Jacob was willing to go to Paddan Aram because God was, had promised to go with him. And now he is willing to go down into the land of Egypt where the people are starving there too, by the way. Where this land of Egypt has been trouble to his family for generations. And he's willing to go there because God is going with him. So it will be okay. The psalmist says in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we will not fear, because God is our refuge and strength. But thirdly, the third implication this comforting presence of God is only for the Christian. The presence of God for the non-Christian can be in the form of blessing in this life. For those who are outside of the faith, those who have not trusted in Christ, those who have not been brought into peace with God, the presence of God in this life may mean blessing. But in the next life, it will only mean judgment. His presence will be there in hell in the form of judgment. And so this promise of God's presence is, is only a reality for the Christian. And by the way, it's only comforting for the Christian. Because for us, we have God's presence now with its protection, blessing, and help, and, and all that God is present with us to help us through difficulty in this life and in the next life, glory, where we get to worship our God the way we want to, without sin, without temptation, without hindrance, without block between us and Him. And so for us, though we experience the blessings of God in this life, the Christian looks forward to the next life and will experience only the blessings of God without all the hardship attendant with it. And so the comforting presence of God is only for the Christian. The good news is, you can go from being a non-Christian to being a Christian. Put your faith in Christ. 
Realize your own need, your own guilt. Realize your own debt of sin guilt that you have before God. Recognize that Jesus pays the penalty for sin debt. That His life is a life of righteousness and that by faith in Him you have your own sin wiped away and righteousness placed in its place so that you stand before God with His full pleasure, having been united with Christ, having been brought to peace with God. So what starts out as bad news for the non-Christian is good news because you don't have to remain one. Put your faith in Christ and do it today and you'll find peace with God and you'll see God's blessing in this world Though it's mixed with the difficulty of this world, but you, you have in that same, that same act, that same moment that continues on and grows in our lives, a hope of eternity at peace with God, worshiping Him. And so that would be the first point of application. Trust Christ if you don't know Him. If you're on the outside and the presence of God is a, is a fearful thing to you, because you, you, you understand your own guilt. Run to Christ. Run to Christ and have that guilt taken care of. Second point of application. Do not fear. Do not fear, Christian. Stop going through this one life that God has given you afraid of what might happen. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Since we have the fear of the Lord, we should fear nothing else. Some of us, all of us, need to grow in this. Why are we afraid? Why are we afraid when God Almighty has given us His own presence? When we face that list of things that I read earlier, and these are real, I don't downplay them. When we read that list, why would we fear those things when we have the presence of God going with us? Let's let's be bold. Let's be courageous. Let's be willing to go together into that dark and unknown land of Egypt, whatever your Egypt is, knowing the presence of God with you. Stop fearing because you fear God. And thirdly, as a connection to that, stop fearing disaster. Stop fearing disaster. Joseph saw disaster after disaster in his life. And look what God did with him. I'm not saying you're going to end up the grand vizier of Egypt. (laughs) But God was at work in Joseph. And he's committed himself to be at work in you as well, Christian. Look what God did with Joseph when the famine was so bad that Jacob had to send his sons to Egypt to buy food and then eventually move down to Egypt himself. What did God do? During that very time of hardship and famine that was so intense it would drive them to go down into that land of danger and fear and all that other stuff while the people there were suffering, facing starvation themselves to the point that they were willing to give up their own freedom so they could have food. At that very moment, what did God do? He multiplied them. He made the nation of Israel, the the people of Jacob, to be fruitful and multiply greatly. 
in the same moment. God caused them to be fruitful and to multiply in those very hard times. God often uses hard times and disasters to bless His people. Now, they grew in wealth. They grew in possessions. They grew in number. Is that the promise for us? How, how, how can I say, how can this be that God so often uses hard times and disasters to bless His people? We've all seen Christians suffer hardship, maybe for years, maybe absolutely without relief, suffering for years, ending in death. How can I say that God blesses His people when their lives can look like that? Well, here's why. Here's why. Because there is a reality to humanity that is beyond just the physical. You and I so quickly and so persistently look at the outward that we think that is the sign of blessing or cursing. How, how well someone is doing health-wise, psychologically, as a family. And we say that's a sign of blessing or that's a sign of cursing. But Paul thought about it differently. And I want to close with these words. As a challenge to us, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient and the things that are unseen are eternal Christian God will be with you and it will be okay have courage. Fear not. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would have courage in Christ. I pray that we who know peace with you, who have had the greatest enemy defeated, would have such confidence in you, knowing your presence is with us ever knowing that you will not forsake us, that you will not cast us off. We have your Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, as a pledge of that inheritance to come, that we who have such peace, we who know your presence, we who fear you, may we not fear anything else. Help us in this. We are weak. We are weak, Father. Help us. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Give us this perspective, this view that Paul had in 2 Corinthians, may that be ours as well. And that we would not only look on the transient, visible things, but that we would see the growth that you are bringing, eternal growth in the invisible things. And may we find hope and confidence there, even if we see our outer man wasting away. Bless us, we pray. Help us, we pray. Empower us by your Spirit to trust in you regardless of the Egypt we face. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're going to uh, pray for Jeff. So, uh, Jeff, if you would come up here, kind of in this corner, anyone who wants to join us for that, come up. We're going to pray for him and for God's blessing on him. There will be another family up here to pray with you as well if you want to come and pray with them. I would encourage you about evening church tonight at 6 p.m. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.